Amen. Good morning. I am all fired up. My, my mood does not match the weather. I think, I think, my name is Matt, by the way. I'm one of the pastors. Our lead pastor, Tom, sitting right over here graciously, allowed me to answer this ridiculous question, what happens when I die? Thank you very much. He gave Will Bushman, his son-in-law, this, the question on why sex is a big deal, and then he gave me what happens when you die. Um, he's going to do, like, why is God so loving? That'll be his question next week. Um, but I think what it is, I think I know why I'm all fired up. I think, I, I think I've been unleashed. I think I've been unleashed. The ladies know what I'm talking about. Unleashed was this weekend. It was unbelievable. And me and some guys huddled up in the balcony looking down. Uh, We were all related to women on the stage. So it wasn't that weird, but we felt weird. And one time I forgot my name badge. So I was walking around, just this dude walking around, all these 600 women. And I felt really, really self-conscious. So I literally was walking around going, I'm Dee's husband. I'm Dee's husband. I'm with it. I'm I'm, I'm with this. And, uh, but what an amazing, amazing deal. And I'll tell you what made it amazing. I mean, the program was awesome. Um, the speakers, the wisdom that came through. The worship was unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable. We had some of our worship team up there, uh, Tessa, Nancy, and Connie, along with some other ladies. Unbelievable, powerful worship. But what was the most powerful to me was that 600 women came together in the rain and I just watched the power of missional unity as they just sat and they soaked it in. And they took the high points and they took the low points. They took the great stuff. They took the tough stuff. And I think something unbelievable and powerful is going to happen through that. So thanks to all of you who are a part of that. And uh, more to come, more to come. So a uh, big question this week, big one. We're in this 21 question series. If you're, if you're new with us, we crowdsourced these questions uh, several months ago. We just asked all of you, what's on your heart and mind? What do you think of the big cultural questions? And there was a big category that had to do with what happens when you die. Lots of things come under that category. Will I continue on or will I I just cease to exist. Uh, will my mother, father, son, daughter, best friend be there? And will I know them there? Will I be able to visit the earth after I've gone there? Will I have a body or only a spirit? All these kinds of questions. And but perhaps the most profound and important question of all. I don't know if you all know this. But Tom is a painter. Tom's a painter. Now, it's very private. It's very private. It, no one's ever seen his paintings but him. He hides them. He's got a secret vault that he hides them in, and uh, only he knows where it is. And uh, he, what he does is he paints his dreams. He paints his visions, and usually he gets a vision during personal worship during the week. As he's reflecting, he, fail, he falls into a deep slumber, and the Holy Spirit meets him uh, in the ether, and then he has a vision, and he awakes in the middle of the night and he paints the answer. So it's gonna be a short sermon today because we have a visual illustration of Tom's answer to what happens when you die. That's that's if you have accepted dogs into your heart. If you haven't, then this is what happens. Let's pray. (laughs) What happens to my pets? It's a thing. I got to tell you, I've had dogs. They're a lot nicer to me than people. Um, You can't make them mad. They just love you no matter what. They just, you come home and they're waiting. They're waiting all day. um, Every day you leave, they think he's never coming back. He's never coming back. He's never coming back, but I'm going to watch hopefully. And then he comes back and you're the best and ever. So I get it. I get why that's an important question, you know. Um, But listen. 
Man, there are so many things we could talk about that are relevant and useful and helpful and comforting, but there is a danger. You might want to take that down. That's disturbing. Um, Put something else up there. Um, (laughs) You know, we had a creative discussion about whether that was too horrifying for children, that second picture. (laughs) We decided to take a chance. So sorry, if, you, if your child needs counseling, go, go see Tom. Um, there's a danger in navigating this question. It is so pivotal, but uh, there is a danger in navigating that question, what happens when I die, and that's that we might get lost in the eddies and the meanders of intellectual curiosity, the finer details of what things might look like or where we might live or what we might wear or what will happen to our bodies and to our pets, We may also become intoxicated by our obsession with the final destination of everybody else but us. The question is not what happens when we die, it is what happens when I die. The final destination of this river that is your life, the infinite ocean into which it pours is not just, it's not just simply life or death. It's peace or war. It's love or hate, it's renewal or destruction, it is being or ceasing to be forever. So while we can approach this question intellectually with our intellectual curiosity, today we're going to approach it with conscience and conviction at the core of what we believe about the universe and about moral things, about the nature of God and the nature of people So I want to start by uh, just saying this, Uh, for most of human history, most of recorded history, religion all over the world uh, has believed there is some kind of afterlife, something beyond the natural, something supernatural. We have laws of nature, they've always believed there were laws of supernature uh, in which we would be judged for our actions. Everybody's always believed that. I was in India a few years ago, and we were providing water for a slum full of people called the Dalits. The Dalits don't even make it into the caste system. They're called the dust beneath Brahma's feet. And they're still that way today. They've won their civil rights, but they haven't won their cultural rights. And so we were uh, in a village of two or three acres that probably had a thousand people in it, for real. Families of five living in a room the size of the stage, cooking in there, using, going to the bathroom, no, no running water, no toilets. We provided, we found out that for $20 a day, we could send a truck of water in and provide them water until the mission we were working with was able to develop some better resources for them. And so we were so excited to come back that night and meet the line of people peacefully organized and so appreciative and grateful as they were getting water from this truck. When we saw a well-dressed man come flying, running in a rage over with a stick, with a stick, with a rod, beating them and screaming at them and swearing at them and dispersing the people from the water. And we confronted the guy and we said, what are you doing? And it turned out he was a Hindu priest. And he said, don't you understand that these people must improve themselves in this life? They have done something to put them where they are. And they are paying their penance in this life. And if you bring them relief from their suffering, they will not earn a better station in the next life. And he believed that the way I believe in Jesus. We were destroying those people and condemning them to another life of despair by giving them water. All of human history has conceived of this idea 
that the soul continues on and in one way or another, there is this um, form, this blessed place of peace for the righteous, for the forgiven, maybe something like this in the Renaissance. You know, we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, clouds and angels and all that sort of thing. So in the Renaissance, they begin to, to produce images like this, ascending to heaven with Jesus. Places of torment, there's always been a concept that somehow you would pay for your sins. A place like that, a river of fire overseen by an evil overlord, condemned. So that, up until the 1800s, was what everybody thought. Enter the Enlightenment, the age of rationalism, the age of reason, when a presupposition, when a a postulate was, was put forth and it was this. The natural world is all there is. There is no supernatural world. So if there were not, what would that mean? Three men, a philosopher, a historian, and a psychologist changed the world with their theories about what it would mean if there was nothing after. The first one, Sigmund Freud. These men were generally contemporaries. Sigmund Freud had an interesting view of religion. Here's what he believed. He believed that religion was an illusion. It literally had a book I studied in college uh, with my New Testament professor who was an atheist. The book was called The Future of an Illusion. He said this about religion. He said, religion is constructed in the mind to to assuage guilt over actions without changing behavior. I act, I'm punished, the scales are balanced, so I can act again. That's what it means if religion is an illusion. Then Karl Marx, the historian, he said this, and actually, you know, look at that. (laughs) Look at that facial hair working. If that guy was at the, at the Unleashed conference, he'd have been thrown out the window. But impressive facial hair, though. If any guy in here is willing to do that, I, I, will, uh, I will somehow reward you. But uh, Karl Marx, you've heard him say that religion is the opiate of the masses. But let me read you that whole quote in context because it's, uh, it's actually from the heart. It's, it's actually profound. He said this, religion, assuming there's nothing else, accepting the, the hard fact that this is it, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. The heart of a heartless world, the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Man makes religion. Religion does not make man. The third, Friedrich Nietzsche. He famously pronounced, based on this premise, that God is dead. And by the way, he didn't say that self-righteously or arrogantly. He said that dismayed. He said the enlightenment understanding that there is nothing but the natural world will not allow us to believe in the Christian concept of an other world, some other place where we can be relieved from our sufferings. He believed that we were living in a post-moral society that understood that this life is it. Enlightenment thinking would not allow us to have this otherworldly understanding because that is the way, again, just like Karl Marx said, that we are oppressed. The powerful elite, the small group oppresses the masses by telling them just just accept your suffering. Be content in your suffering because in some other world you will be relieved. So Nietzsche's philosophy was that uh, we must do the best we can with this life. Because this life 
is all there is. So I tell you those things because all of us who've been educated in some form or another in this way, all of us who've grown up in this time, in the modernist era, the postmodernist era, and today, all of us are affected by this framework, whether we realize it or not. Today, there's a deep struggle with the notion of eternal judgment. That's, that's probably the most fundamental question. Maybe the question that we got the most under this category, this idea that God will punish you eternally for temporal sins. But here's what's interesting. Even with all of this horsepower, even with Nietzsche and Marx and Freud and all of that energy that said, we're going to choose this premise, that after this life there is nothing even with all of that energy and cultural movement toward that direction in Western society, there still endured a renewed fascination with the metaphysical. Today, what do people say? They don't say, I don't believe in God anymore. That's ridiculous. They say, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. You see, that naturalistic philosophy that reason was the key to all things and that that we were going to advance out of our struggles and inequities uh, fell apart when it ran up against World War I and World War II and the creation of the atom bomb and all the suffering that was generated from that thinking, all of those men, Germans, Austrians. Do you see what emerged from that thinking? Nazi Germany. 70 million people in the Soviet Union over time, 70 million people who got to see firsthand what happens when you die at the hand of the logical progression of that philosophy. And so today, people have begun to ask that question again, what happens when I die? There's a curiosity about a spiritual spiritual realm. There's a curiosity about a spirituality and in which I somehow continue on one way or another, but it's very cloudy, it's very shady, it's, it's, it's very hard to grasp. And we're all affected by this thinking that perhaps we just turn to dust, and yet I have this sense in me, gutturally, internally, that there is something more. And perhaps what it is, is that I live on through the legacy of the memory of me. I live on in the hearts and minds of people and to the extent that I suck the marrow out of this life, that I make the best of it, that I make my mark, that I experience adventure, that I do something significant and find my place in this world, I will live on. My soul will continue in the hearts and minds of the people who follow me. So what do I do? I make my mark on this life. That's the most common thinking today about this question. So here's our promise. Our promise is that we would answer these questions very specifically through the life and teaching of Jesus. What did he have to say about what happens when you die? Now, I want to start by saying uh, Jesus was an amazing, beautiful, humble teacher. He was a little Jewish man. He was a man of peace. He suffered and died a martyr because of love. He preached to love uh, not only your neighbors but your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Uh, but he preached that from a place uh, that was pretty crazy if it wasn't true. He, he preached that from the authority of a king. Jesus believed he was the king of the universe. He believed that. And so from that place... He taught some things. Before we look specifically at what Jesus had to say, we have to start in one place with this question. For what state was the soul made according to Christianity? Why were we created? 
In Genesis chapter two, it says this. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Why? Here it comes. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. That was a new concept. The soul was made to live for eternal life. The soul was made to live on forever, but not just to live on forever. The only way it could have eternal life and not eternal spiritual death is if it was integrated perfectly into the love of God. Hear that. Of course that meant submitted to the love of God. Of course that meant obedient to his laws. But those were all fruits of the fact that we were made to be fully integrated into the love and character and nature and life of our eternal creator. We were made to have eternal life fully integrated with God's love. So now let's jump into some teaching from Jesus that you've heard before, but I want to read a little farther because it gets a little heavier. What is God's heart for the world? We know the world's a broken place. We know that we all have uh, understanding of justice. We all have this ought in us. This is the way things ought to be as opposed to the way things really actually are. We all know there are problems in the world. So what is God's heart for the world? In John 3, it says this famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's so easy to just blast through that because it's the first verse you learn when you're a kid. But let me stop there. For God so loved his creation. That which had been torn from him like a child from a mother's womb. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But here's the the horrible but relevant truth. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. From what? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, whoever does not integrate is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. He has condemned himself. What's the heart of God for the world? It is to restore it to life at greatest possible cost to himself. Facing the horrible reality of the alternative. So what's a litmus test for the way God judges the world? Now there are more than one for the way God judges whether or not we have submitted to him and given ourselves fully, made him God instead of ourselves. There are various litmus tests There's one in Matthew 8 where he talks about religious people and he says, listen, I got news for you. There are gonna be people coming from the east and the west that are gonna be in heaven. And there are religious people like you who are not gonna be there. So there is an issue with hypocrisy and and religiosity apart from integration into God and his love that didn't work. But there was another one and I wanna sit on this one for a minute because um, you know a lot of us have litmus tests. A lot of us say, well, I won't believe in a God who condemns this or I won't believe in a God who condemns that. Well, let's just say you're right about whatever that issue is, and somehow over the years we've misinterpreted scripture. Let me give you one that I don't think any of us can dispute, and then you can decide before loving God if you are perfectly integrated into his love. 
This is Matthew 25, Jesus talking. Remember that sweet, humble, meek, mild little man who says the nice memes? When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, and let me stop right there. If you've heard this thousand times and think you've got it dialed in, you are especially the one who needs to listen. Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I, Jesus, was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. How are you doing now? Perfectly. So then Jesus says something very sobering, very powerful, because he can't leave this part out. We cannot leave the reality of the way the universe works out. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer and say, Lord, when did we, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Read something into that. Hey, if we'd seen you, we know you're the king and we know that kings deserve that unlike the others. We know that to get what we want from you, O king, we would have done that had we known. And Jesus says you missed the point. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, he says. They say, when was that? And he says, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now let me tell you something. He wasn't giving them a measuring stick whereby they would be able to divide themselves as they existed because every one of them was a goat. And he knew it. He knew he was the lamb. He was the only lamb. He was the only sheep that belonged in the kingdom. He was talking to the goats and he wanted them to understand, get off your high horse about your self-righteousness. If you want to talk about full integration into the love of God, you have never tasted, you have never tasted, you have never smelled the sweet aroma of true righteousness and you can 
You can. But as Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of that glory. Then in John 14, 1, toward the end of Jesus' life, he's speaking to his disciples and he's comforting them because they're getting scared because something's about to happen. He speaks to them and says this. It's, it, it, it's about something that we in doctrinal terms call the now and the not yet. We're living in a time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, a time when people die today uh, in Christ, integrated into the love of God through Christ's mercy and forgiveness. Um, they go to be with Jesus. They go to be where uh, what C- Stephen saw when Jesus was sitting at the right hand of the Father. They go, they go to be in spirit with Jesus, until he comes again to do something new. But he says this. He says uh, in John 14, my brothers, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have, uh, I would have told you. I would not have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. So Jesus says the soul continues, but there are conditions to its continuing. It's about whether or not we submit to God and let him be God and become reintegrated, regrafted into his perfect love, or whether we choose to be God for ourselves. So what happens to our bodies? When Jesus comes again, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says, this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And Jesus will come and once and for all, in the end, put death to death and restore us to life, body and soul, and a new heavens and a new earth, the difference being that it now shines in the radiance of the glorious mercy and grace of Christ. That's his answer. So I want to give you something to think about, especially with regard to this idea um, about judgment. C.S. Lewis, if, C- if C.S. Lewis, he said it, uh, said it, he said it best. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, whether you believe a lot of these things about fire, lakes of fire, and all these kinds of things are metaphorical, here's what you can be certain of, we can all agree upon, and that is that the Bible clearly seeks to rouse you to action by convincing you of a terrible possibility. I even found a really interesting insight from Tony Robbins, the the self-help speaker. He said in his travels all around the world, he said people have a fundamental need for certainty, but a continuum between certainty and variety. He says they want certainty that will not suffer, but they also want it within the context of a variety that brings them independence and happiness. Heaven and hell play at those sensibilities. I want heaven, but I want it on my own terms. I want hell for Hitler, but not for me. Heaven and hell are not simply about reward and punishment. They are more fundamentally about God, us, and our desire for him or for ourselves to be God. Back to Lewis. 
The soul continues forever and becomes more and more of what it is in this life. Either surrendered to God or a slave to itself. Death removes my last contact with God. I have my wish to live wholly within myself and to make the best of what I find there and what I find there is hell. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I do not mean that the ghosts may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion wherein an envious man wishes to be happy, but they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach anything good. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded, and they are therefore self-enslaved, just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. So, good or bad, whether you like it or not, this is a thing you have to wrestle with in this world and know that it's been wrestled with throughout history and that the rationalists were found wanting. When you ask Jesus what happens when I die, here's what he says. He says you get what you want once and for all. The first person with whom I must contend between this life and the next is neither God nor Satan. It is me. And listen, I don't say that with judgment or with self-righteousness at all. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said never, he told pastors, never preach on hell without a tear in your eye. And I want to ask your forgiveness for anyone or anywhere you have been where you have been preached judgment and hell by someone who would be glad to see you go there. I beg forgiveness for the church, for anyone in this room who has been dismissed, ignored, left to deal themselves with questions like this rather than loved and cherished and treasured the way Jesus treasured me and gave his life up for me. You see, I believe Jesus earned the right to say these harsh things because it was him paying the price for them. That's what you have to deal with. Was Jesus who he said he was? Because if he was, it changes everything. So, with a tear in my eye, and love in my heart for you, I want to leave you with a sober thought and a glorious hope from Mr. Spurgeon himself in answer to the question, what happens when I die? I shall, I hope, encourage you to seek the road to heaven. I shall also have to utter some very sharp things concerning the end of the lost in the pit of hell. Upon both these subjects, I will try and speak as God helps me. But I beseech you, as you love your souls, weigh right and wrong this day. See whether what I say be the truth of God. If it be not, reject it utterly and cast it away. But if it is, at your peril you disregard it. For as you shall answer before God, 
the great judge of heaven and earth. It will go ill with you if the words of his servant and of his scriptures are despised. But, here, says Mr. Spurgeon, is the most glorious promise. I will read it again as he preaches on Matthew 8. Many shall come from east and west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the Jewish religion, which pointed toward Christ in the kingdom of heaven. I like that text because it tells me what heaven is and gives me a beautiful picture of it. It says it is a place where I shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I shall sit down and rest. Oh, what a sweet thought that is for the working man. He often wipes the hot sweat from his face and he wonders whether there is a land where he shall have to toil no longer. He scarcely ever eats a mouthful of bread that is moistened with the sweet sweat of his brow. Often he comes home weary and flings himself upon the couch, perhaps too tired to sleep, and he says, oh, is there no land where I can rest? Is there no place where I can sit and for once let these weary limbs be still? Is there no land where I can be quiet? Yes, thou son of toil and labor, there is a happy land where toil and labor are unknown. Beyond yon blue welkin, there is a sky fair and bright as wall, its walls are jasper, its lights is brighter than the sun. There the weary are at rest and the wicked cease from troubling. Immortal souls are yonder where never wipe sweat from their brow for they sow not, neither do they reap. They have not to toil and labor There on a green flowery mount, their weary souls shall sit and with transporting joys recount the labors of their feet. That is what happens when you die fully integrated into the love of your creator through Christ's work in this world. That's the answer to the question. Let's pray. Lord God, it is so easy for me to step beyond this life to answer that question and imagine what it might be like without first soberly considering my part in that. So I pray with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray with those who are new to us. I pray for those who are just here observing that you would all, that you would take all of us and by your love, by your, the patient love of a father, that you would reason together with us, that you would speak with us, that you would meet us where we are, that you would speak through us in this room without judgment or condemnation the truth of the reality that we were made for eternity to be loved by you and to love you. And once we embrace that, Father, light up our dreams with the imagination of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.